If you have an agency and you've ever thought of creating a product or spinning out a product business from your agency, you're going to love this interview. I talk with Will Critchlow, who has successfully done that, created a product business inside an agency, spun it out, and it's now its own independent thing. He managed to sell his stake in the agency. So converting your services business into a technology business is what this one's all about. It's not easy, but as you'll see in this story, it's a really, really interesting path to go and with a potential upside that's far, far greater than the exit in the agency, which Will achieved. He's also looking at the expansion of a technology business, a completely different multiple, a completely different kind of thing to do. So a great way to take the platform you've created on an agency and take it to the next evolution. So. Dive in here and listen to what Will Critchlow has to say. Hi, welcome to the Agency Exits podcast. I'm here with Will Critchlow, and we're going to have a really exciting discussion. If you have any thoughts of making products in your agency, you're definitely going to want to listen to what Will has to say. His journey of how he has done that is really fascinating. Will, thanks for joining today. Thank you for having me on. I'm, yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah. So let me open up with asking where, so you've developed product and we'll get into search pilot, all the kind of stuff that you've done with that. But was this always a plan of yours to develop product out of an agency platform or was it more a happy accident that this happened and turned out so well? Yeah, no, there's, I'm not very good at master plans. So <laughs> we got started with the agency way back 2005 my co-founder and i started the agency and we didn't start i mean actually we had a couple of dabbles with products along the way but we didn't start the product that became search pilot until over a decade later and that would have been too much planning uh, for me it was <laughs> I, it was more than an accident i guess i mean we did it deliberately when we did it but it wasn't a plan from the outset at all right Right. So, so at the get-go, you are in the space that maybe a lot of folks are right now. They have an agency. Their idea is it would be great to have a product, whether that's to help the agency deliver better or be its own product, but you didn't start out that way. So maybe if you could recount a little bit about that journey to, I've got an agency and starting to think about products and then thinking about what's probably really hard for people, which is like, how do I actually go about developing something? Maybe I'm not a developer myself. How did that mm -hmm. come to be? Yeah. So as I say, we ran the agency for many years and we experimented with quite a few different kinds of things along the way, complementing the pure agency business. So we'd expanded into the US and we, that kind of geographic expansion was one avenue for us of business growth. We also ran a conference series. So we used to run a conference series called Search Love, which started in London and we ended up running in the US as well. It's not exactly a product, but you know, it is a different business model mm. to the pure agency world. We also built a learning and development platform called Distilled U, which I guess could have been effectively was a product, but it was more like an information product than a technology product. And I guess that was our first kind of taste of success in the product kind of direction. It became the size of a large client for us, but never broke out into bigger than that. And, and we didn't really have the confidence that we could grow it into a standalone business. But the thing that eventually became Search Pilot was a little different. We did approach that somewhat differently. So first of all, we set out with creating an R&D team within mm -hmm. the agency. And this was initially, you mentioned a couple of different objectives. We were very much down the mindset of making the agency as good as possible. We wanted mm -hmm. to improve the business 
be technology enabled, find differentiation, pricing power, better win rates, better retention rates in particular, which can be very tough in agency world, make more of our revenue recurring, all of those kinds of objectives. And ultimately very kind of mission driven. We wanted to just do better stuff. And that R&D team set out very much in the research and development mindset without, without a product in mind. It was exploratory, trying out a bunch of different things, trying out some technology that was quite centered on agency operations, some that was quite centered on improving the work that we were doing, and then a few kind of bits of different stars aligned to end up going down the avenue we finally went down. I would just inject one note of caution onto that. You said, how do you develop it if you're not an engineer yourself? I mean, I'm pretty technical, though not an engineer. I'm not about to write, you know, nobody would let me write production code, but I do at least, I speak developer at least. And my co-founder is an engineer, he's a senior engineer in the team. And so we were well set up for that. And I still don't know. So I love what I'm doing today and I love the outcomes that we've had, but I don't know if you took us back to the outset and said, this is going to cost you this much money. You're like, are you sure? I don't know how great a decision it was in that like risk adjusted chance of success. You know, we did pulled off this thing. It wasn't, as I say, originally the plan was to, to improve the agency and then the plan to spin yeah. out and sell the agency came later. I'm sure we'll get into that. But yeah, it was a hard and expensive thing to build really valuable product. And obviously we know this because folks raise millions of dollars from VCs to build product. So it is not surprising that it costs millions of dollars. And it just turned out in this case, it was millions of our dollars, which at the outset of the project wasn't a thing we had. We were funding it from right. cash flow. It wasn't like we had this pool of cash sitting around ready to go. So it's a hard road. The rewards are huge and it's a ton of fun, but I think it's not an obviously the right choice as it might seem when you look at the difference in business model between an agency and product business. And, it, and from our prior conversation, it looks like you did have some learnings about you start to develop a product and then you found out something about the target market of that product versus your agency target market. And when I talk to agencies about this, it's often you're trying to use that agency client base as your beta customer group, because that's the yep. valuable asset that you have are those relationships. But it turns out in your situation, talk a little bit about what you discovered perhaps in that journey to making a product and realizing I might have a little bit of a mismatch there. Yeah. So, I mean, the product was always had a very clear target market. We knew that the product was going to be great for big websites and mm. typically big businesses. And one of the advantages we had going into this game was unlike many folks who start a technology business, we weren't scared of pitching expensive software because mm -hmm. we'd been pitching expensive services for right. years. And so, you know, you talk to your kind of classic engineer starting a product business and they're like, mm, I'm thinking I maybe charge $30 a month. And you're like, <laughs> dude, what about, you know, have you thought about charging more? And they're like, what, like a hundred dollars a month? And we're like, no, like 10,000. Like you're selling to big businesses. They have big budgets. Like you've got to look for the opportunities here. So we knew that we were targeting quite big companies and the agency had always skewed towards working with relatively large organizations. You know, we weren't since the very early days, we hadn't been about the kind of small local business opportunities, but what we didn't really internalize until it became clear as we went along was actually the overlap in target market was smaller than we thought because yeah. the agency business actually ended up working with big 
organizations that didn't necessarily have the big scalable websites. So we would work okay. with a lot of SaaS businesses, with a lot of B2B organizations, a lot of folks who, where SEO was, you know, the search channel was very important to them, but the folks where it was absolutely live or die, and you're talking millions of pages and billions of revenue, those folks have very talented in-house teams. And so we would right. work with them where we could on the agency side, but they were a surprisingly small bit of the target market, the agency compared to the B2B SaaS and those kind of side of things. And those folks weren't good target market for the software. So there was a bit less overlap than we'd originally envisaged. And I think we, we thought when we were thought we were building tech enabled agency, we had thought that maybe the technology would enable us to win those, you know, big e-commerce or travel real estate brands as agency clients because of the software. And what it turned out was that didn't happen. Even when we won them as software customers, it didn't necessarily translate into winning them as agency clients. And that kind of brand crossover was weaker than we expected it to be. Interesting. And not something you could have predicted from the outset. Like your hypothesis was they will need this, but in actuality, whether it's the selling channel. So I suppose you would have a different internal buyer at the customer, the SaaS customer versus the agency, and also the lack of overlap. Because I'm thinking of it in my mind as a kind of a Venn diagram, right? You've got large company, but then you've got large company, which has large traffic and high LTV enough to support software. Or, you know, There's an intersection, but it's, it might be a small one. Yeah, it's not everyone. And it's a little bit like it's the crossover of selling SEO and PPC to the same mm -hmm. organization. Always harder than folks think it's going to be, because mm -hmm. you always have to go surprisingly far up the org chart before you reach somebody who has oversight over both those channels. And it always feels like those practitioners should sit right alongside one another, but quite often they're quite siloed and quite separate. And that's a whole separate thing. But yeah, anyway, so what we did discover was that our software customers absolutely needed professional services, but those professional services were very specialized, very specific, and didn't look a lot like our agency services. So some individuals became professional services consultants who had been agency consultants. The team, the whole team structure didn't lend itself to that. And so it was serendipitous that it was alongside these discoveries. We're, you know, we're coming to all these realizations at the same time as this opportunity came along to spin the business out and take them in different directions. Well, that, that's a good segue into that. But how long had you, how long did it take to build the first version of the product? And then how long was it before that you were entertaining a concept of spinning it out. What was the timeline like on that? Timeline is something like first revenue summer 2017. We still think very much an R&D team at that point. So mm -hmm. no kind of commercial folks dedicated to really pushing it. You know, I was selling it on the side and <laughs> we had folks a little bit seconded to that team. Mm -hmm. 2018, we put a general manager over the team gave it a PL, so it became not just an R&D, but like a business unit within agency and treated like it had its own team, its own costs, its own revenue. That general manager had been a VP in the agency for us. And he actually still, he came with the spin out. And so he's now the COO of Searchpilot right. as the standalone org. And that was where we really, he came from, come from a sales background. He was drove the commercial proposition forward. And then we were the earliest conversation about the exit or the spin out and sale of the agency the first conversation was in late spring, early summer, 2019, and the mm -hmm. deal closed January, 2020. Okay. So it was actually a relatively compressed timeline. If you think about 
the software world. It, it felt like a long time as we were going through it. Uh, it there's a lot, lot of gray that uh, is coming through. Did you ever consider taking venture funding or angel funding or something in that? I mean, it sounds like you bootstrapped the whole way, which is sometimes the hard way to go, but you end up owning the whole pie. And there's a, some hard decisions to be made there since, I mean, it sounds like you split it. It had its own GM. It had its own P&L. Did you think about spinning it out at that point and raising, or was that never really in the cards? I would say it was, it always felt unlikely. It felt like that wasn't what we were going to choose, but we absolutely mm -hmm. considered it. I mean, you know, obviously it was on the list of things of, oh, you know, should we, could we do this? The reason for going the route that we did, I think is firstly, I am a big fan of the way that we're doing it. And that's not a knock on raising VC, but you have to know the game you play. And mm -hmm. I think the the VC game is, uh, so I'd highly recommend the book Lost and Founder, written by a good friend of mine, Rand Fishkin, who has been through this from the other side. He did raise money. He actually, since he wrote the book, had finally had the exit and you know has had a lot of success. If you read the book, you'll hear the angst that he went through. But it's eye-opening to know what that business model really looks like. Mm -hmm. You remember that they have a massive portfolio of bets and you as the founder have a single bet. And I think that works in certain circumstances, especially for folks who've maybe already had a smaller exit. Mm -hmm. You know, someone like, I remember Damesh Shah, the, one of the founders at HubSpot, yeah. talking mm -hmm. about how with HubSpot, they were very happy to raise these huge sums of money because this was then their life project after previous exits. They were already comfortable, you know, house paid yeah. off, that kind of order of magnitude of money. And this was like, they were absolutely swinging for the fences on this thing. And they were super aligned about that. I think as a first time founder or someone who's never had an exit, it's a very different game to be playing. And I think maybe mm -hmm. that works if you're, if you see your career as a portfolio of these things, you know, it's like, if the first one doesn't work, maybe the next one will, maybe the next one will. But by the time we were doing this, you know, I was nearly 40 and also had all of my net worth tied up in this business that we'd built up to this point. You know, mm -hmm. we'd obviously paid ourselves and we were paying ourselves okay by this point, but not taking capital out of the business in massive chunks. And so a big part of the reason the deal was attractive was it let us diversify personally, take some cash out uh, as we sold the agency part. And actually that was about being more risk positive on the technology side and saying, actually, we can go harder and faster at this now because it's not, we don't have to treat it like, you know, this vase that we're carrying that has like our entire net worth in it. And this is all a long way around to, to the thinking, but initially it wouldn't have been when it was embedded in the agency, it wasn't venture fundable. You know, it was mm -hmm. so tied up with the agency, so embedded, so entangled mm -hmm. that it wouldn't have worked. We had various conversations. It just, the mechanics of it were, wouldn't work. But the flip side was we had the opportunity to bootstrap it because we had the cash flow from the rep, from the agency. Mm -hmm. We had some cash in the bank from years of a profitable agency operation. That was an option for us. Uh, and my feeling, I was very glad in you know 2019 that we hadn't, that we weren't in that position of being a small tech startup that started in 2017, raised a seed round and got yeah. going. Because these things are always slow, especially in the enterprise, always slower than you think. The product development is slower. The sales cycle is slower. The revenue growth it is great when it comes, but you know that that contract that you got signed still takes quite a while to turn into actual cash in the bank. And I think had we raised a seed round, it would have been incredibly hard to have got to success off that seed round. Whereas with the bootstrapping model, we could take our time and get be patient capital, be our own patient capital, and then 
at the spin out, we have again considered it since then. But the nice thing, I think one of the things that I didn't quite realize about the difference between the agency model and the software model, especially in selling to larger businesses, we could sell 12 month contracts with annual prepay. And in the agency world, other agency founders have achieved this, but I have broadly speaking, never managed to sell 12 month deal. And I think once ever got someone to prepay. And, you know, it was always a collections game of, you know, you're billing monthly, you're collecting in the big companies in particular will squeeze you for 120 day payment terms or you know, whatever. Right. So the cash flow model of an agency is rough. The big benefit of an agency is you can get started with nothing. You can bootstrap an agency really nicely. The challenge as you scale it is it becomes very cash hungry. Whereas the experience we've had on the software side is essentially you get to collect next year's AR this year. Mm -hmm. And that means if you're growing, you're cash collection actually runs ahead of your profitability. And that wasn't so noticeable when we were a small part of an agency. But mm -hmm. when you spin this part out and it's its own cash flow engine, you yeah, get to see you, that dynamic yeah. play out. And you can do that well, in particular because of your target market. So you're not going for those $30 a month consumers you are going for B2B right. where they'll strike a PO and there you go. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out that on renewal, they'll write you that check next year. And yeah. you know, we actually have, I think, three or four of our biggest customers are now on multi-year deals. Mm -hmm. They're not prepaying for multi-year, but they're, they've are they committed to multi-year contracts to lock in pricing or to you know, for, mm -hmm. for whatever other reason. And that's a huge vote of confidence and a thing that you can plan around, which is just mm -hmm. a world different to the agency model. But so, of course, then you might remember something happened in early 2020 uh, that you know, shook the world up a little bit. So we, we definitely weren't thinking about fundraising in the first half of 2020. We were a little bit busy with other things on our minds. And then by the time we came out of the pandemic, but came out of the initial business impact of the pandemic, because I don't know everybody else's experience, but what we basically saw was this short, sharp decline. And actually, the rebound was quick and mm -hmm. to above where we were before. So the second half of 2020 was great business-wise. It was challenging in lockdowns and all the rest of it, but from a business perspective, it was good. And actually the the kind of hangover of that is what we're seeing now, I think, in you know, the interest rates and everything else. Right. But nonetheless, right. it wasn't until then. And at that point, our cash flow was good. And we said, well, actually, mm -hmm. look, we don't need to raise it. And so I think partly it's the portfolio thing, but partly it's also knowing the game you're playing. I think if you're mm -hmm. saying... We are absolutely all in, in this being a billion dollar a year revenue business that, and if it doesn't make that, it fails, then VC is the product for you. If there are outcomes where you're like, you know what, I'd love a billion dollar a year business, but if we turn out to only make a business that makes a few hundred million a year, then, you know, I could probably build a nice business out of that. VC is not the right product, but your incentives are not aligned with your investors at that stage. And so I think I would never, I'm not ruling out raising money. I think if we did, we would do it from a growth equity position of strength of that, like saying, you know, we're completely aligned on three Xing, five X this business. And this financial partner is going to help us do that. And it's going to reap the reward of the increase in equity value that comes with that. And that's the game we're playing. And we want to right. do that with a high degree of certainty, not with a one in a thousand moonshot. I think you, you really put your finger on it with the VC business model. And frankly, they're struggling right now with what to do with how AIs come onto the scene and you can build, you know, an MVP for a product with a tiny team and you can get product market fit with a tiny team and they don't need $50 million to get to the place. So the VC funds are actually having trouble because they can't write checks small enough for folks developing things and getting to market. So they're facing that mm -hmm. challenge. 
And then they can't deploy enough capital because they have to write big checks, which has to, when the company is smaller, dilute it more. So it's a challenging time for them. And then for those of us who come from the agency world, very often there's a slight, I don't know if it's a risk aversion, but we've opted for a cash flow business. And then to, to, mel to meld that model with a swing for the fences is sometimes very cognitively dissonant for us, as I think that you experienced. It's like, you don't know, no, I'll feed this thing from the cash. I understand the cash flow cycle, and that's an easier way to feed it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'd be surprised if there are many agencies that can really truly fit a VC funding model, you know, family and friends around angel investors, those kinds of things, of you know, if we'd taken a small amount of seed capital from those kind of folks, they mm -hmm. could have had a good outcome investing in our agency, but it wouldn't have been, it's definitely not exciting to VCs. We're like, we're definitely yeah. not the scale yeah. that, that would have excited those folks. Yeah. And that they, like you say, they need that scale of both. They need to deploy capital on that scale and they need the commensurate outcome on Correct. that scale. I'd love to hear more about the actual transaction that you had. So you'd already started to isolate the software side of the business. And then, you know, around the 2020 mark, you had that, you know, big dip, but we talked about a little bit about what your transaction structure looked like, which would be super interesting. And then, you know, maybe continuing on to a little bit about how you thought about the economics of it, you know, post transaction, right? The earnouts and how, you know, the, how the shareholders worked and all that kind of stuff. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so the, I was going to say the short version. I'm not very good at short versions. Let's see how long the version is. It was, uh, we started having conversations in the first half of 2019, uh, and that was mutual interest, really. So the folks who ended up acquiring us had raised private equity backing to, to do precisely this, right? To acquire other complementary agencies, expand their geographic and service footprint. And we went back. Always. So the founder and CEO over there had spoken at our conference, actually. So this mm -hmm. was a surprising ROI of running our own conference business. <laughs> it's the biggest and ROI of a conference ever. <laughs> that's right. And so he had, he'd spoken at our conference. And so when I saw the news about the raise, really without thinking about, and there was no real agenda, I just dropped him a kind of, you know, congrats, let's get lunch type thing. And when we had lunch, he said, well, actually the reason we raised money was to acquire businesses like yours, you know, like, do you want to have a chat? And mm -hmm. we had a kind of initial scoping out discussion and Actually, at that stage, we couldn't figure out a path to making it work because precisely because we had this software product in there, that, depending how you look at it, making the margins of the agency worse at the time. Like that, that was one way, that was one lens of seeing it through. And it was actually the financial folks who came back and said, who weirdly I knew independently because mm. I'd spoken to their portfolio conference, their portfolio company's conference about SEO a mm -hmm. couple of years prior. So they knew me as well and they knew my company and they said, look, this these are the two, this, the right move is to put these two businesses together. Let us do the financial engineering. So they came back with a kind of back of the envelope. What about if we did this? What about if we spin this bit out? You guys continue to own that and we do the deal this way. And that back of the envelope became the heads of terms and much pain and due diligence later, that became the deal terms. You know, I don't know how common that experience is, but definitely in our case, it felt like we'd spend a lot of money on lawyers to get right back where we started, <laughs> but you know, that's all good. And at least it's everyone keeping their word. And, you know, they'd said, we're not in the business of changing these, these terms, if something horrible shows up in due diligence, we will back out, but we're not going to try and haircut a few percent off the deal or, you know, whatever else. And which was great to hear. And sure enough that, that, that kind of came to pass. And so the, what this meant was, I suspect, I don't know. There's a lot of advice that you need to go and do a 
process and have multiple bids. And I think mm-hmm. that undoubtedly is, is the way to maximize your financial cash return. We we didn't go down that route. We signed an exclusivity agreement pretty early. And the reason for that was that it was a perfect shape deal for right. my co-founder and me, which was we had spoken 18 months earlier about the kind of amount of cash that we would love to take out of the business one way or another to allow to de-risk our personal lives, to get us to be able to say, look, we're swinging for this thing. Anything above that number was like, okay, like we that could work for us. So tick that box. It ticked a not having a long drawn out earn out box. So we structured mm-hmm. it with equity rather than earn out accelerators mm-hmm. and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mainly part of that was vision driven that the idea was to build an integrated company that mm-hmm. wasn't actually even going to be my old agency wasn't going to have a PL dedicated to it within the new business. It was going to okay. all be, be absorbed, molded okay. together, which means it would have been difficult to say exactly what was the performance of you know your right. bit. So it's part of that. And it was part that if we're going to do the spin out, my co-founder was going to go with that on day one because he was critical. You know, he was an engineer in that. And my plan or my desire was to be CEO and run that organization. So what we ended up doing was that I had a, I was fully working for the acquirer for six months after the deal. And the plan was that was just integration. So it was all about making, getting everything up and running smoothly. And then I had an ongoing commitment to a certain amount of time to be involved in the conferences and do various other bits and pieces. And, but incentivized on with an equity stake rather than a, and that worked well for all of us. And the, we had a kind of long tail of shareholders. So my co-founder and I were the majority shareholders. And then we had a long tail of past and present senior team members who we'd given equity options or who'd exercised their options and actually were shareholders. And they were, they got cash comp. As I said, 2020, other things conspired to, to change everyone's plans. So actually that first six months was a lot more firefighting than anyone expected. And that was on, obviously on, in both businesses. So I was a full-time employee of the acquirer on the leadership team, on calls all day, trying to make the agency <laughs> hold together. And then I had this other job of trying to run the startup that had just run into all of these, all of its own headwinds, especially because we had a lot of big travel customers prior mm-hmm. to the pandemic. Three yeah. of our five biggest customers pre-pandemic were travel. Wow. And so that was a sector that you know, just obviously... One stuck with us, actually. We just won an award with them for our work, helping them recover faster than their industry because they mm. continued investing throughout the pandemic. But the other two went away. And the, I mentioned the COO earlier. He took on like a phenomenal amount during that time, essentially running the business whenever mm-hmm. I was in this, this other role. And it was exhausting having two jobs at, yeah, at that time. Right. But, you know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. So it was. we came out the other side. And... Again, everyone held up all their parts of the deal. And sure enough, I dropped down to a lower time commitment with the acquirer and that worked great. And, and then we've gradually reduced that into, you know, at this point, I'm fully dedicated to, to search pilot with just a, a small amount of more strategic input onto the, onto the agency side of thing, mm-hmm. which I think is, is kind of great for everyone. So that's roughly the structure. I guess the other piece of that was, as I said, the minority shareholders were getting cash straight to ours was part cash, part equity. Theirs was all cash, but some of it was deferred and some of it was conditional on certain bits of performance, not quite earn out territory, but you know, like metrics not going catastrophically wrong. And, <laughs> and guess what happened? There was of course a catastrophe. We just pulled it off. So we, we basically meant the those metrics didn't go as catastrophically wrong as the catastrophe 
in the world. And we squeaked through by the skin of our teeth of not not ending up with those folks in a bad position as a result of what happened to the economy and the performance. So, and then so maybe, it bounced back super strong. So like the, I don't know everybody else's experience, but the bounce back was very short and fast. So maybe it would be helpful for anyone listening about this structure. Do you, would you have any tips on either how to structure? So, I mean, one thing I heard was instead of an earnout, you took equity in the next vehicle. So that's a, an interesting and probably less common structure. And then any tips on whether on that part of structuring and on earnout? Because for your shareholders, it could have been a disaster. It sounds like you recovered and yep. whatever metrics around churn or revenue or whatever worked out. Are there any things that we can't plan for every pandemic, obviously, but are there right. any lessons that you might think about the problem differently if you were approaching it now? I don't know that I would think about them differently, particularly, because I feel like we, we pulled it off in what is the worst stress test of my professional life. So <laughs> I guess we did think about the contingencies enough. We did pull that off, but a, a few, yeah, as some ideas, some thoughts that, that might be interesting to some folks. So I think the first one is, so my, I guess an overriding one, my experience is think very carefully at the heads of terms stage mm -hmm. because both sides are committing to that. It's mm -hmm. not just that the acquirer is saying, this is what we'll do. It's that you as the seller are saying, this is what I will accept. Now, of course, things can change, right? And your material adverse impacts can happen and people can pull out and deals fall apart all the time. And definitely one of the things I've, I knew at the time, but I've seen so many times since is so many deals fall apart and they fall apart at the 11th hour, literally right. at the moment of signing deals can fall apart. So it hasn't happened until it's happened and until the cash mm -hmm. is in the bank and the deal is literally signed and everybody's done. And even later until the earnout is paid or the whatever comes later, it's never done until it's done. And you have to somehow have that mindset of we, we've got to be able to keep operating if this whole thing falls through, even if it falls through at the very last minute. And that's the hardest psychological thing, I think, to, to deal with. Because even when, you go, even when you get a good outcome, you don't know until the very last minute that it's going to be a good outcome, if, if you see what I mean. So that's part of it. I would say, so think very hard at that stage. I would say my experience, I don't know everybody else's, we didn't really get a lot of say in the equity versus that. that. That was very much driven by the acquirer. That's what they wanted to do. It just suited us. So it wasn't so much that I drove that as that was a right opportunity, right time, right place thing. I do know a lot of folks who've really struggled with both scenarios. I know a lot of folks who struggled under earnouts, not necessarily financially. Some folks who've had very good financial outcomes who nonetheless hated it, but going from being a founder to being an employee, I guess. Employee. It's, it's, it's the hardest thing in the world. Brutal. So going with your eyes open mm -hmm. and you do need to pay attention to what's your job going to be? What's your title going to be? Who are you going to report to? What are you going to get paid? All of those, kind, if you're sticking around as a, a, as a member of the team, you absolutely need to care about those things because you are selecting a job that it's very hard or very costly to quit. And that's that's a big psychological thing. I think the other piece that I found hardest, and as I said, we pulled it off just, is I found it super hard to negotiate any of the elements of the deal that didn't apply symmetrically to me. Mm. So there were a bunch of, my co-founder, broadly speaking, trusted me to run it. You know, that was my role in the business. We were very aligned. We'd spoken about what we wanted to achieve. He had very little interest in the lawyers and the finance folks and all the rest of it. And he was like, there, there were a number of times where I would check in with him and say, I just want to check in. You're okay with me 
negotiating this, right? And he'd be like, yeah. yes, absolutely. <laughs> you, you do that. And I never felt conflicted about that as long as I was in the same boat. As long as I was yeah. negotiating something that applied to my equity the same way it applies to his mm-hmm. equity or any of those kinds of areas. The one area that was difficult was whenever there was asymmetry, not necessarily between us, but particularly when I was looking out for the minority shareholders who mm-hmm. were getting a structurally different deal to mm-hmm. me and specifically to me because I'm the one negotiating on their behalf. And right. I could trust myself whenever we, were, whenever we had symmetry and alignment, I could trust myself that I, because I was looking out for my own interests, I could look at them in the eye and they would, I could with straight face and a complete confidence, tell them that I'd looked out for their interests exactly the same way I would look out for my own because they were the same. Whenever that diverged, I found it very, that was the, by far the most emotionally draining part of it of trying to mm-hmm. figure out, because in any negotiation, you don't get everything you want. You, yeah. That's the whole point. You've yep. got this give and take, there's compromise. And so inevitably you're compromising and figuring out when to stand firm, when to compromise, what to stand firm on and risk blowing the deal up, what give up on, even though it might not be what people might prefer. That was the emotional challenge in and, the negotiation. And your uh, brother and, was a minority uh, shareholder as well. So involved um, in that category. Yes. We, I actually, for some reason, he wasn't the one front of mind <laughs> when I was worrying about this stuff so much. I think I felt like we have a very good relationship. I feel like he trusted me and... I didn't, I didn't need to prove the trust to him in maybe mm-hmm. the same way that I felt the need to prove it to some of the kind of more third party minority mm-hmm. shareholders. And also he, I don't know everybody on our cap tables, financial situation, the numbers that we're talking about were pretty small for some of them, right? Mm-hmm. From, I mean, some of the small ones, it was like literally go buy a fancy dinner, go buy a new bike, that kind of <laughs> level of, of money. His was uh, at the bigger end, but he'd also had a very good job at Google, had been successful in a variety of other ways. I knew that he wasn't waiting on this money to be like, if I get, if this money comes in, I can move house or whatever. And so I didn't feel like it was, uh, yeah, I don't know. The pressure I felt was like the middle of the cap table, Mm -hmm. not the folks who trusted me implicitly and not the folks who were getting a a tiny amount of money where it was neither here nor there, really. It was that stuff in the middle where it was like, this is a meaningful amount of money to Mm -hmm. folks who I don't, Maybe some of them I haven't really spoken to a great deal in recent times. Some of them were leadership team who'd left sometime before. But this yeah. is the amount of money that, depending on what they're up to these days, could be quite meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. And negotiating completely on their behalf. And they have to, you know, the terms of the shareholder agreement and everything, they basically have to put up with it. Um, <laughs> so I have a position of power here. But I felt very awkward wielding right. that power and figuring out where the right place was to draw that line. And I think it worked out well for everyone in, in the end. But Definitely. That was the sleepless sleepless night stuff for sure. Yeah. That sounds tough. Maybe switch gears a little bit and let's talk a little bit about SearchPilot and your, first of all, maybe your transition from running a services business, which I know happened over time, but then at one point you do your six months in the chair with the acquirer. And then now you're heading up a technology business, which is a fundamentally different kind of organization. Maybe mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about that switch and how that's been for you and what some context for someone who's like, I want to make a product, but I don't really know what it's like to run a product business in that chair. I think part of the key is something you already said is it happened gradually. So it wasn't a day one, day two thing. It was, mm-hmm. this was a process that had started years before as we'd started building a, a division within the business that was product led and then gradually moving 
over to that seat. I think the closest to the overnight switch was that six-month period where it's now spun out and moving from yeah very well-defined job to new well-defined job, albeit as a founder. And I think the thing that made that easiest for me was that I was stepping back a scale in organization size. So the mm-hmm. agency had got to 50 some people and the spun out technology business was 12, 14 mm-hmm. different times through 2020. So it was a different scale of organization that brought a lot of fun and energy because anybody who's done that journey from two or three of you to six of you to 10 of you to 18 to 30 to 50 and you know beyond it's a different energy isn't it? different beast. Uh, different game yeah exactly and one of the things that was interesting stepping back to that scale was there was a lot of stuff that was easier the second time around it was a lot easier to run a 12 to 14 person company the second time than it was the first time <laughs> part of that is the nature of the beast but part yeah. of it is experience and gray hairs and being almost twice as old as it was the first time around <laughs> and especially on the management side like people management mm-hmm. before we started our first business we hadn't managed anyone. Mm-hmm. And so those poor folks who we managed early on <laughs> had to like tolerate us learning how to manage. And yeah, we'd obviously a, been through like that. It's like the first girlfriend problem. It's just like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry for yeah, who I exactly. Want. You just want to go back and apologize a little bit. And the so we definitely learned and grown in those areas. So then to take the skills of, okay, we were able to run a 50-person business and now we're running a 12-person business. I can do, there's some bits of that I can do better and be more easily than the job I just had. So that frees up some learning capacity and some mind space and some growth to say, okay, that bit's in hand. I'm going to spend some time on learning about software metrics and R and net revenue retention and all of those kinds of sides of things, annual contracts and prepay and sales processes and building out a different kind of marketing funnel. And there's been so much learning. Mm-hmm. But I felt like because some bits, some bits shifted down to make room for more learning capacity. And we'd been students of the game a little bit before that. So very interested in these different business models, very much taking stuff in. And this was, oh, finally, we get to put this in, in, into practice. And I think we made a couple of things easier for ourselves by deliberately learning some lessons of things we wanted to do differently the second time around. And I like to describe myself as a one and a half time founder. Like this business is not my second business. It spun out of the first one, but it's not my first business either. And there's something interesting about that. And I think second time, true second time founders, if you look at their second business, it normally corrects or even overcorrects the mistakes that they made in their first business. And so the mistakes and all kinds of other things, right? Whether it's the business model or you know whatever else, but specifically on the mistakes side of things, I feel like second-time founders are often much more rigorous about things like hiring and management processes way earlier, much more rigorous on defining and documenting values and mission and vision and those things way earlier. We didn't think about any of that stuff in the agency until we were already 30 people or something. Which, it's actually, it, and it's harder because you're attempting to uh, you're more like you're discovering what these things are yeah because yeah. You, it's this organization has taken on values of its own and you yeah. kind of get to write them down but you don't get to decide what they're going to be and right. so there were a few areas like that where we were able to take specific things that we said we either we screwed this up the first time or we just didn't do it quite how we want to or we didn't do it early enough 
or we've got better at it since then to just do things a little differently uh, the, the second time around, which, yeah, as I say, definitely eased some of that transition by freeing up mind space to, to enable the learning. Weirdly, the pandemic probably helped. You know, the fact that it was as big a crisis as I've lived through and certainly as big, a, even though we operated through the global financial crisis, in, there was such a tailwind for digital marketing in 2008, 2009, that yep. our sales cycle slowed down a little bit. Some cash collection was difficult, but broadly speaking, we grew through that whole time. 2020, the first half of that kind of, I guess, second quarter of 2020, by far the worst I've ever seen in business metric impact, like overnight. Mm -hmm. Just, you're, yeah, you're absolutely hair on fire trying to figure out, is everyone going bust? Like what, which yep. of our customers are going to still exist? This was before anybody knew what any of the government schemes were going to look like or whatever else. So it's yeah. like everybody's just going stir crazy in their house, worrying that everything's going to yeah. going to pop. And I think that's a way of focusing the mind away from worrying about little things. There's like so this. much you can worry about. Well, this has been, I think, really insightful on product and on the different kinds of business and funding possibilities for, you know, do you get VC, et cetera. But I think there's one kind of big question in everyone's mind, like, what is search pilot? And then, you know, what is that product that you created out of an agency? Who's it for? So, you know, maybe tell a little bit about that and then where they can find out more about you and search pilot. Yep. Sure. So as I said, the point where we started building it, we had been in this agency consulting game for over a decade and we had seen the same challenges crop up with SEO projects at every big organization that we worked with, which was a challenge in proving the value of the work, measuring and quantifying the value of SEO work, particularly on site, like changes to your website and difficulties in getting that work done. So, and these two are very closely connected because obviously you don't get the work done. You, there is no result to prove. And as the, as an agency, you get stuck very much making recommendations. So you mm -hmm. say, we've done a load of research and we think you should do this thing and you need the client to actually do the thing. And then when they do the thing, they turn around and they say, well, did it work? And it's incredibly hard to answer that mm -hmm. question because there's so much confounding stuff going on. There's seasonality, there's Google algorithm changes. There's what your competitors do in the meantime. There's so much going on that means that you can't tell fundamentally. Mm -hmm. You can't look back and say, categorically that change was worth this much to the business and that's a real challenge for investment in the channel and it's why conversely things like paid search have had such huge investment in them out of proportion to the amount of opportunity that is there in organic search which is the bigger channel for basically every website we've ever worked with so we want to solve that problem and the solution that became search pilot is a seo ab testing platform for yeah. very large websites so what we enable sites to do is test specific hypotheses, specific ideas in a statistically significant way to figure out how big an impact they had while controlling for all of the other stuff that's going on around mm -hmm. there. Folks are probably familiar, a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with tools like Optimizely that let you do this right. for user testing, product testing, mm -hmm. conversion rate testing. So mm -hmm. you can try two versions and see which version your users or your potential users prefer. We're, we're doing a similar thing in a different technical way to essentially test which version Google prefers or other search engines prefer. Mm. And the, as I said, we work with large websites in travel, real estate, e-commerce, jobs, listings, any of those kind of sites that have massive site sections 
that have a lot of similar pages. So whether those are roots pages, product pages, category pages, those mm. kind of thing, because the way our technology works is rather than other kinds of testing, you can test on one high traffic page. Mm -hmm. We can't do that. We need to test on high traffic site sections with lots of pages in them because okay. of the way that, that Google indexes sites and technical details that I won't get into, but that, that's in a nutshell what we do. And so we help those folks discover what works, prove it, quantify it, and report on the, the value of their SEO improvement. Okay. So if it's a, if it's a large site, that's, I think that's at least in my unsophisticated brain is a programmatic SEO site. Like I've got weather.com. It's a bunch yes. of geography, mm -hmm. yep. a lot of traffic. I can do in a segmented experiment and I can do it with statistical significance to know that a change on these and all of these properties, well, these pages will reflect positively on all of them. Precisely. The nature of what we built means that we can also then, once we've run that experiment, so we help folks deploy the experiment, measure the results and quantify the impact. So there's a mm -hmm. bunch of like statistical analysis, as well as a piece that actually like deploys those experiments. And because of that first piece, we can also deploy the winner. So we can mm -hmm. speed up that cycle time to getting the hundred percent benefit of, of the winning test. Okay. So you're taking what was formerly viewed as a subjective recommendation and you're making an objective test so that somebody can say, I can actually attach a result, a business result to an SEO change. Yeah, precisely. And that has the huge benefit that you can report on it. Senior leadership can understand it. If you can prioritize the, those changes correctly into your product roadmap, you can reduce the, the engineering demand from mm -hmm. SEO because you're mm -hmm. only asking them to do the winning things now. Right. If 20 or 30% of your tests are winners, you're only asking them to do 20 or 30% of the work that you were previously right. asking them to do. So yeah, it's got all these kind of strong business cases and that, that's what we're working on. Fantastic. So where should people go to find more about SearchPilot or yourself? So SearchPilot is searchpilot.com or at SearchPilot on Twitter. And I'm at Will Critchlow on Twitter is probably the easiest place, but I'm on LinkedIn and anywhere else that people want to find me. Fantastic. Thanks, Will, for all your insight. This has been a great episode. I think that folks will, anyone who's interested in product or even the idea of a product will find a lot of value on this one. So thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me on.